This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book in PDF. The title of this book is That You May Prosper, Dominion by Covenant by Ray R. Sutton. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Appendix 3 Matthew Every Adam up to the time of Christ had failed to redeem man. The first Adam's sin led to death, and his death spread to the whole world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He legally represented the rest of humanity. Before each person was even born, he was guilty of the original sin of Adam. Like the old Puritan primer says, in Adam's fall we sinned all. Adam's own family bore the consequences as brother killed brother. But God had promised a seed, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Not many seeds, but one seed, who would come to redeem the world. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Every mother waited to see if her son would be the Savior. What were they really waiting for? A new Adam. Not only would this new Adam save the world, but he would raise up faithful sons to dominate the earth. Was it Seth, Adam's replacement son for Abel? No, Seth failed to be the new Adam and provide true sons. Within a few generations, his sons were marrying covenant breakers. Their offspring were so vicious and corrupt that God was willing to destroy his entire creation. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and following. God found one righteous man left, Noah. Was it Noah? No, but in a way he was. The world was delivered by his ark. He started to rebuild the world in God's image. Before long, however, one of his sons apostatized, bolted from the faith, and started another line of covenant breakers. The power of sin was greater than grace. The Tower of Babel episode plunged the world into another horrible fall. Noah's life came to a sad end. He proved to be like the old Adam. There was still no new Adam. How about Abraham? No. Yet Abraham seemed to begin the world all over again after the Tower of Babel had thrown everything into confusion. The Tower of Babel created the need for a new priesthood. God chose the Hebrews. Abraham was circumcised and given a seed, Isaac. The Messianic line was narrowed. But the fact that Isaac came meant Abraham was not the new Adam. He died like the rest. Also, the line of the patriarchs, Abraham's successors, Isaac, Jacob, etc., wound up in serious trouble. Jacob's sons turned on the one faithful son, Joseph, sold him into slavery, and a famine, death, came to the land. Joseph ended up in Egypt. Eventually, he rescued the patriarchs and his whole race when God's revelation to him resulted in his being second in command to Pharaoh. Before long, however, Joseph had died, his sons had failed, and Israel was in bondage in a foreign land. Who would save them? Moses? No. He certainly was the next deliverer, but in the end he also died. He successfully led Israel out of bondage, across the Red Sea, and on their way to the Promised Land. But Moses was like the old Adam. His impatience and anger caused him to fall. He died outside the land of promise. A new Savior was needed. Who would he be? Joshua? Samson? Gideon? These were all likely candidates, but each could not save Israel or the world from its sin. What was the answer? Israel asked for a king. The first one was Saul, whose life ended in apostasy. The second became the most powerful king in the history of Israel. Was the new Adam David? No. Prohibited by God from building his house, he died. But his beginning was glorious. He was the man after God's own heart. His remarkable career indicated that he was going to deliver Israel and set up the kingdom of God. When he was crowned the Son of God, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 
the Davidic millennium began, a time roughly a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and following. His millennium began a time of unprecedented peace, but it was short-lived. He too fell, and all his sons apostatized. Only Solomon came back to the faith. Even so, by the middle of this millennium, in the sixth century before Christ, Israel was in captivity. David had not succeeded any better than the first Adam. God brought his covenant lawsuit against the nation time and again through his prophets. Israel would not repent, so he judged them with captivity and slavery to foreign powers. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 60 through 68. During captivity in Babylon, halfway through David's millennium, God revealed to Daniel that a Messiah would come in another 500 years or so. He would make a new covenant. Seventy weeks, literally sevens equals approximately 490 years, have been decreed for your people to build your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the sixty-two weeks, the sixty-ninth week, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make firm a covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he, Christ, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering by his death. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even unto a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. A.D. 70. Daniel 9, 24-27. Daniel had prayed that God would be faithful to his covenant. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. He wanted his people to be sent back to Jerusalem, but he also wanted to know exactly how long they had to turn away from their sins. Answer. They had until 40 years after the death of the Messiah, which would be approximately 490 years from the decree referred to, the prophecy God was revealing to Daniel. So God told him that there would be the coming of the Messiah, and that his true atonement would stop the sacrificial system of the temple. This also meant the end of Israel's religion, the end of the holy city Jerusalem, and the temple, the place of sacrifice. The prophecy of Daniel sums up the complete failure of Israel to be the new Adam. In fact, it brings to an end all of the Adams of history who had proven not to be the true sons of God, and draws biblical history to the time of Christ. When Christ came, apostasy had again filled the land. Israel was run by demon-possessed apostates, John chapter 8, verse 44. Yet, in spite of the previous Adam's lack of success, the coming of the true new Adam had been progressively revealed, each new fall being followed by more redemptive light. Finally, Christ did come, and the covenant to which Daniel referred, a new covenant, was sealed. Jesus and the Deuteronomic Covenant Daniel confirms that Jesus was coming to establish a covenant. From Jesus' own lips, it was called a new covenant. At the Last Supper, taking the cup, he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. What was this covenant to which Christ referred? Matthew gives an indication by the fact that he structured his account of the gospel according to the Deuteronomic covenant. Matthew arranges his book in five sections around Jesus' five discourses or sermons. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, 10 verses 1 through 42, 13 verses 1 through 52, 18 verses 1 through 35, and 23 through 25. He repeats a key phrase at the close of each book and or sermon to mark the end. It came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, 11, verse 1, 13, verse 53, 19, verse 1, 26, verse 1. R.V.G. Tasker, in his excellent commentary on Matthew, says, This is, in effect, another way of saying, Here endeth the first, or second, etc., book of the oracles of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew clearly follows some kind of fivefold structuring. Why five? I believe Matthew develops a covenantal framework of the life of Christ. The book organizes around the five points of covenantalism. Thus, Matthew's gospel simultaneously arranges according to Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch. Some work has been done comparing Matthew to the Pentateuch, but none, to my knowledge, develops the book according to Deuteronomy. For the remainder of the chapter, let us compare the Deuteronomic model to Matthew. The Covenantal Structure of Matthew True Transcendence Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 7 verse 28 Hierarchy Matthew chapter 7 verse 29 through 11 verse 1 Ethics Matthew chapter 11 verse 2 through 13 verse 53 Sanctions Matthew chapter 13 verse 54 through 19 verse 2 Continuity Part 1 Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 through 26 verse 1 Part 2 Matthew chapter 26 verse 2 through 28 verse 20 1 True Transcendence Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, verse 28. Matthew begins his gospel by emphasizing transcendence. Remember that there are three common ways by which God distinguishes himself and establishes his lordship. Creation, redemption, and revelation. Matthew opens his gospel by the first two, but definitely focuses on the revelation theme, just as we saw in the Deuteronomic covenant. First, the Genesis creation appears in the introductory statement the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, 1. The word genealogy is from the Greek word genesis, meaning origin or lineage. It is the same word after which the first book of the Bible is named. Genesis is divided into ten sections that end, these are the generations of. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 10, chapter 11, verse 27, chapter 25, verse 12, Chapter 25, verse 19, chapter 36, verse 1, chapter 36, verse 9, and chapter 37, verse 2. Second, the redemption theme appears in the announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ to Mary. Matthew emphasizes Joseph, a man who is caught in a moral dilemma but is delivered by God's revelation. Twice this happens. He decides to divorce Mary because she is pregnant, Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, and he has to flee to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod, a descendant of Esau, the firstborn of Isaac. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Apparently, Matthew intends the reader to make the connection back to the first Joseph, Jacob's son, who experienced similar moral dilemmas and was delivered by special revelation. Genesis chapters 38 through 50. He too was taken to Egypt to escape the wrath of his elder brothers, the firstborn. Yet Israel was sent to Egypt to escape judgment during the famine. Later, they came up out of Egypt at the Exodus for redemption. Third, Matthew emphasizes the revelation theme of transcendence more than the others by means of Jesus' sermon that closes this section, the Sermon on the Mount. As Deuteronomy opened by pointing out that the words of the Deuteronomic covenant were transcendent, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 3, from God, not man, so the thrust of the first sermon contrasts Jesus' interpretation of the law with the words of men, the interpretations of the Pharisees. Some have mistakenly thought that he was comparing his words to the teaching of Moses, 
this is not true. To pit Christ against Moses results in pitting Scripture against Scripture. As Daniel Fuller has observed, it makes one section of Scripture anathematize another portion. Moreover, Christ says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Careful reading of the You Have Heard It Said statement shows that Moses did not teach these ideas. Rather, they were distorted interpretations of him. The conflict had become one of God's word against the words of man. The Pharisees had elevated their own interpretations and writings above Scripture. Christ spoke as divine interpreter, showing that the Pharisees were wrong. This proved that God's word and his Son are truly transcendent and imminent. Man's words are neither. By so doing, Jesus reestablished the Deuteronomic covenant and placed himself at the head as the new Moses. At the end of the book, like Moses, he died before entering the new Canaan, the whole world. But unlike Moses, he did not remain dead. He rose to become the true Joshua. From the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, therefore, we see how the author self-consciously structured according to the Deuteronomic pattern. At the end of the sermon we read, The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28-29 through 29. This hinge draws to a conclusion the true transcendence segment and takes us to the next subject, hierarchy. 2. Hierarchy Matthew chapter 7, verse 29 through 11, verse 1. Matthew follows book 1 with the theme of hierarchy. Matthew 8 takes us right to the idea of authority. Beginning with the account of the leper, we read of an encounter which is the classic passage on authority, the story of the centurion. A centurion came to Christ because his servant was lying at home, paralyzed and suffering much pain. Matthew chapter 8, verse 6. Christ said he would be willing to come, but the centurion told Jesus that he was not worthy to have him under his roof. Then the centurion made a remarkable comment. He said, Just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. Jesus was taken by his comment and said he had not seen faith like this in all of Israel. The centurion understood authority in terms of the power of mediation. He gave an order and the servant, or the one to whom the command was given, carried out what was commanded. The centurion could, therefore, extend his authority over great distances. He saw that Christ had a similar but even greater authority. Jesus was able to bring things to pass with his word. Through the word, life, or death, could be mediated to someone. The centurion says, just say the word. The Roman officer believed in a mediated system of government. The following passages contain a series of healings where Christ mediates judgment unto life and death. For example, not only does Christ heal the centurion's servant, but he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14-17. through 17. He also judges unto death when he casts out and effectively destroys the demons of the Gadarene demoniac. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28-34. through 34. The concept of a mediated system of authority comes to full force during Jesus' second sermon. He names and then commissions his disciples to exercise his authority on the earth. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. They have the power to bless and curse. Any city that does not receive them will be judged worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. By placing a harsher judgment on the cities that refuse Christ's ordained mediators of authority, the sermon parallels the second section of Deuteronomy, with one exception. In Deuteronomy, Moses was head of the covenant. In Matthew, Christ is the head. His authority is being applied to the earth. This explains why judgment intensifies in the new covenant. Matthew concludes book 2 with a reference to the role of the prophet. 
The disciples are compared to the prophets. Christ promises that anyone who receives his servants receives his authority, and the reward will be great. Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 through 42. This points us toward the ethical section. 3. Ethics. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 through 13, verse 53. The ethics segment of Deuteronomy concentrated on the fulfillment of righteousness. Three subordinate ideas formed around this concept. Conquest, consecration, and image-bearing. Matthew makes all of the same emphasis by starting book 3 with the account of John the Baptist, the prophet. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 19. Why the prophet, and what does this have to do with the ethical theme? The prophet was the embodiment of the word of God. Literally, he was a miniature incarnation of the fulfillment of righteousness. He reminded the people of the basic ethical cause-effect relationship. He did so by means of a covenant lawsuit. Additionally, the prophet was a special image-bearer. Remember, the image-bearer was tied to sonship in the third section of Deuteronomy. Only a son could properly image the father. Sonship was purely in terms of ethics and not any physical or metaphysical reflection. The one who obeyed was the true image-bearer and son of God. When all of God's sons turned away, the prophet was always there to recall to the minds of God's people that they needed to live like sons. Since he was the incarnation of the word of God, he represented living sonship to them. Matthew also develops the fulfillment of righteousness theme in the third section around the difficult ethical question of the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. By placing this sequence here, Matthew focuses our attention on the heart of the covenant, law. The Pharisees accused Jesus of changing the law of the covenant, Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. But he turned their arguments against them and said, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 through 6. So the ethics of the old covenant had not changed, only its application. Jesus was the new temple, and that meant that the Sabbath could be broken in his presence. Since he is the true rest of God, however, the Sabbath continues forever in him. Christ had become the law of God. Ironically, when Christ was present, the Sabbath was broken and kept simultaneously. How could this be? He declared himself the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. Finally, Matthew concludes the ethics section with Jesus' third sermon. He uses the medium of parables to present the fulfillment of righteousness in the coming of the kingdom. Remember that Moses taught that conquest came as a result of faithfulness to the righteousness of the covenant in Deuteronomy. In the same manner, strong ethical as well as dominical concerns surface in Jesus' words. He begins with the famous parable of the souls. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. The message is simple. The word of God is the seed that falls in different types of soils. Only the soil that perseveres in obedience becomes fertile ground for the birth of the kingdom. Jesus perfectly fulfills this parable in the narrowest sense in that he completely fulfilled the righteousness of the Father and gave birth to the kingdom of God. In its broadest application, however, the followers of Christ would be the new soil in which the kingdom would be born. Jesus continues to use parables to weave ethical faithfulness together with the coming of the kingdom. He finishes on the parable of the dragnet, Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. At the end of the age, the kingdom of God will be fully established when the wicked are separated from the faithful on the basis of fulfilled righteousness, Matthew chapter 13, verse 49. The parallel with Deuteronomy continues in full force. 4. Sanctions Matthew chapter 13, verse 54 through 19, verse 1. 
Matthew's fourth section of his book attests to the sanctions theme. Immediately we see sanction and countersanction at the end of the 13th and 14th chapters. The evangelist returns to the prophetic theme with a discussion about how a prophet is not welcome in his own town. Matthew chapter 13 verses 48 through 54. Provoking the question, why? The prophet is not welcome because he brings sanctions by means of a covenant lawsuit. Not a very popular role. As a matter of fact, Jesus' own friends and family sanctioned him by disregarding his teachings and miracles. With this introduction, Matthew prepares us for the sanction emphasis. In the very next chapter, the first full chapter of this segment, he tells us about the beheading of John the Baptist. John is the prophet who has brought covenant lawsuit against King Herod. In the sanction section of Deuteronomy, I said that this function was to be performed by the witness of the covenant. As a witness, John publicly prosecuted the king. Matthew chapter 14, verse 4. The king had John put in prison, and Herodias had him put to death. John had sanctioned, and the king had countersanctioned. When Christ learned of the prophet's death, he withdrew. But instead of letting the people starve by the loss of his presence, he gave them blessing sanction in the feeding of the five thousand. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Christ countered the sanction of Herod, which took away the word, by providing a better sanction in the sacrament of communion. The same pattern of sanction and countersanction repeats itself through the remainder of the section. For example, in chapter 15, the Pharisees initiate covenant lawsuit against Jesus, charging him with breaking the tradition of the elders. Matthew chapter 15, verse 2. Christ counters with a sanction of cursing, calling them hypocrites. Matthew chapter 15, verse 7. In effect, he was issuing his own covenant lawsuit, thus picking up where John the Baptist had left off. In the following section, again, Jesus withdraws and feeds the blessing sanction of communion to the 4,000. Chapter 15 parallels the sanction countersanction pattern of chapter 14. Finally, Jesus concludes the sanction section with his fourth sermon, Matthew 18. The topic is church discipline, most certainly a sanction theme. He leads into the discussion by talking about the need to exercise that member that causes the rest of the body to stumble, Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 14. He even starts with a sanction word, woe, meaning curse, Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. Then he presents the actual process of discipline, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 concluding on how the unrepentant should be excommunicated. But Jesus closes his sermon on the very practical note of forgiveness, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Why? Forgiveness is the sanction of blessing, the appropriate response to the one who has responded properly to the sanction of cursing. The sermon ends with the familiar refrain added by Matthew, and it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. 5. Continuity. Matthew chapter 19, verses 2 through chapter 28, verse 20. The final section breaks into two halves. Covenantal discontinuity, Matthew chapter 19, verse 2 through chapter 26, verse 1, and covenantal continuity, Matthew chapter 26, verse 2 through 28, verse 20. Because the book climaxes in the great continuity and discontinuity of history, this is the largest section. Matthew begins first with the complete disinheritance of Israel through repeated emphasis on judgment. Then he concludes the book with the death and resurrection of Christ, the establishment of new heirs and new inheritance. A. Discontinuity. The opening passage of this section sounds a clear note of covenantal discontinuity. Matthew 19 starts with the great divorce question. Divorce is the covenantal process of creating discontinuity. Specifically, divorce cuts off inheritance. While the Pharisees are asking questions about divorce between men and women, 
Jesus answers in such a way as to turn the matter to the issue of inheritance. He argues that true inheritance can only be found in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. In the same context, we find the rich young ruler coming to Christ to find out how to obtain eternal life. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. The word obtain means inherit, because in the Lucan account it says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Jesus tells him that he must give up his inheritance, everything that he has, to have eternal life. In other words, he loses his inheritance to gain God's. Of course, the new inheritance includes the old plus an expansion. Jesus says as much when he tells his disciples in the same context, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Matthew chapter 19 verse 29. The key to this encounter is that the rich young ruler represents Israel. Israel's inheritance via the old covenant had become its God. It worshipped the land, namely its own inheritance, committing the ancient sin of Baalism. Jesus called them to repentance, therefore, by forfeiting what they had come to worship. As a result, his inheritance would be their previous land plus the whole world. One would think that such an offer would not be refused. Israel did refuse and was disinherited. More to the point, Israel refused because they were envious of the fact that God was willing to include the Gentiles into his inheritance. In the parable of the vineyard, those who grumble because they receive the same amount as the man who comes late in the day are fired. Matthew chapter 20, verse 14. They are Israel, receiving covenantal discontinuity. For the next several chapters, one section after another pronounces judgment and total discontinuity between God and Israel. First, Jesus enters Jerusalem, cleansing the temple, and curses the fig tree, a symbol of Israel. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. Second, he tells the parable of the landowner where the wicked tenants who kill the prophets and the owner's son are brought to a wretched end, and the owner rents out the vineyard to other vine growers and pays the proceeds, inheritance, at seasons. Matthew chapter 21, verse 41. Third, Jesus tells another parable about a man who shows up at the king's wedding feast without wedding clothing on. He is thrown out of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. The man represents Israel being cut off from its inheritance. Fourth, Jesus pronounces eight woes, curses over Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 39. Fifth, Jesus gives his last sermon of the book and describes the actual destruction of Jerusalem. Its total devastation implies the complete discontinuity we have been examining. Then, finally, Christ applies the destruction of Jerusalem to the final judgment of the world where the wicked receive their just rewards. Total disinheritance. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. B. Continuity. Unique to the fifth section of Matthew, Matthew attaches his usual formula to the end of Jesus' sermon, Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. But it is not the end of the book or section. He has discussed total discontinuity, but now he directs his attention to covenantal continuity. It begins with the institution of the Lord's Supper, at the time of the Passover. Remember this meal originally disinherited the Egyptians and transferred the wealth of the wicked into the hands of the Israelites. Jesus' meal and death is the Passover in reverse. This time, the Jews are disinherited, and the Gentiles receive the wealth of the Jews. We can say that through Jesus' taking of man's discontinuity, loss of inheritance due to the fall, the world receives continuity. Jesus, of course, is the lamb without blemish. After the meal, he is led to be slaughtered. The firstborn son dies, not the firstborn of the Egyptians, but the firstborn of God. But this firstborn does not stay in the grave. 
The firstborn of the Egyptians had all died. Exodus chapter 12, verse 30. They were helpless. God's firstborn rises again at dawn, the time the original Passover march was to have begun. On this resurrection day, however, Christ begins a triumphal march into Jerusalem. He gathers his people and holds another meal. This time the inheritance is regained. Continuity is created with the covenant keepers. Matthew concludes his book with the Great Commission, drawing both the section of the covenant and our study of Jesus' covenant to a close. The best statement of the Great Commission is found at the end of Matthew. This is the new dominion charter attached to the end of the covenant, a statement of the church's new inheritance. We saw the same thing at the end of Deuteronomy. Jesus appears as the new Joshua commanding his army to take the land that belongs to them. A significant shift has taken place, one from the land of Palestine to the world. Since this commission is structured according to the covenant, I will develop it later. Nevertheless, Matthew verifies that the gospel ends in dominion in the form of another mini-covenant, proving dominion by covenant. Conclusion Matthew follows Deuteronomy's covenant structure. Without a doubt, the structure of the two books is parallel, but the theological ramifications are important. It means the new covenant is not completely new in structure and content. It builds on the old covenant, making the new simply a refurbishing of the old. But someone might say, the Gospels, for the most part, are still in the old covenant economy, coming just before the death of Christ where the transition from old to new took place. Does the Deuteronomic covenantal pattern still continue to influence the rest of the New Testament? How about the epistles? They don't have this structure, do they? Yes, they do, and with a simple overview of the book of Romans, I believe we will see the pattern again. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.